so glad you guys are here. And uh, this is uh, fall kickoff for us. And um, uh, I got some things I want to talk about today. And uh, when, we, when we started Thrive Church a few years ago, one of the things that we, we wanted to make sure that we took very seriously was this notion of discipleship. There's something about the Great Commission that just simply says, go therefore make disciples. And um, some of the churches that I've been a part of in the past, and, and I know maybe you have too, where we talked a lot about discipleship, but really didn't understand what that, that means. And for us, it's very simple. It's helping other people find and follow Jesus and helping all of us follow Jesus a little bit better. Those of us who have already found him. <clears throat> and there's, there's that kind of was driving what we were attempting to do. And, and we've learned a lot of things along the way and what discipleship means to people. And, and, and one of the things that we learned over a period of time is that central to that is this idea of relationship. And um, I was thinking about this a little bit because in, in early church history, about the third century, uh, there was a large movement of um, men and women out into the deserts of Egypt. In fact, uh, this is one of the, uh, the pictures depicting that. In fact, they called these men and women um, the desert fathers and desert mothers. And it was uh, a type of monasticism where you, you just got away from it all so that you could better commune with God. And I, and I get that. I get that idea an awful lot. There's, n there's no distractions of the city, and, and you're just kind of out in the middle of the wilderness, and you're trying to connect with, with the Creator, and there are times that I'm like that too. But I have, to, I have to admit, that doesn't square with what I read Jesus talking about. It doesn't, it doesn't match up. And, and it's as simple as this. It's really hard to love God and love your neighbor as yourself if you ain't got any neighbors. <laughs> you with me? <laughs> and I just, if you're out in the middle of the wilderness and your neighbor is, you know, like a lizard or something, I don't know what you find in the desert, I'm not sure that's what Jesus had in mind, you know? And this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself is an essential part of what I think is is a discipleship. And um, when Jesus taught us these kinds of practices, uh, you, you kind of have to be around other people. And in other words, discipleship is a contact sport. I don't know how you get around that. And so instead, what we've tried to do, uh, we've tried to find a certain amount of guidance and a certain amount of inspiration from the origins of the church. And I've preached on this at length, um, but I think that there's a, a great deal of value to come back to it. And I'm talking about revisiting Acts chapter 2, the very beginning part of, of the early church. In fact, I think I talked about it earlier this year. But, but let's, let's return there. And there's a couple things I want to point out to you. So if you have a Bible, you might want to turn to Acts chapter 2. Um, or if you have a Bible app, you can plug it in. It'll be helpful to you. So let me just read this and point a couple things out. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 42. And they, meaning these new disciples, these people who were following Jesus, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, 
And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing uh, the proceeds to all as any had need. It goes on. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, fortunately, we also get a little, um, a little bit more, uh, I don't know if I would call it detail, but we get a, a little bit more of the picture in Acts chapter 4. And, and here it is, beginning with verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So you, you get an idea of what this togetherness um, looked like. And when we, when we take these two uh, passages of, of the early church, we get this beautiful picture of what we call Christian community and what we call life together. And, and I, I love what Dan just said uh, earlier, is that you, if your vision is community, then you're going to destroy it. But if your vision is loving the people around you, you end up creating community. Does that make sense? Uh, I think there's a Bonhoeffer quote, and I, I love that because I think that's absolutely true because that's what seems to be taking place in that early church. I mean, can you imagine selling some of your stuff off and passing it out to the people who have needs? I mean, we live in America. I mean, we don't do that kind of stuff here. Now, we might, you know, try to help you out a little bit, but the, but the point is, is that that's the kind of love that was being demonstrated. Now, that made sense for that particular culture in that time. So we have to translate that to our culture and our time, and we, we need to understand that. But the point is, is that there's an underlying motivating factor of love that's going on, and we get to see it demonstrated here. And this idea of life together is so essential to the early church. You have to remember, when people started following Jesus, they were often disowned by the rest of their families. And so these communities of Jesus followers became surrogate families, and they were taking the place and doing the things that a family would, would do. And those people who were marginalized for one reason or another actually belonged. Belonging is the, the real key to all of this. Do you feel like you belong? Do we help people feel like they belong? And so I think this is essential to church planting as well, because by the way, I, I tell this to people all the time, we're not a church, we're church plant. We're just getting kind of started here. We're two years in and we still have a lot of work to do and we're still a church plant. And so these ideas of life together are essential to church planting. And I find more and more people who want something that's just beyond Sunday morning or the Sunday show, as we like to call it. And we've got to be careful with that. But there's something about church that isn't just Sunday morning. And most people I know want to feel like they belong before they believe. And I think we get that backwards sometimes. Because you, 
uh, people want to belong, then they want to believe, and then they're going to behave in a way that's consistent with Jesus. We, we do it the other way around. We want people to behave so that they belong. And if they believe that's okay, or maybe not, we don't really know. But as long as you're behaving okay and it looks that way, you're fine. And that's not the progression of this. People want to belong before they believe. And when you read Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, isn't there this little part of you where you want that too? That kind of love and commitment to one another? By the way, just this last week, uh, we did a picnic out at uh, Hakey Creek Park on, on Labor Day, and I felt like we got a little glimpse of it. Just a little glimpse of it. Um, one of the metrics that we have around here is we like to, uh, to see uh, how people stick around after church and talk. And uh, the longer people linger, we, we know that we're starting to see some of that love take place. And that happened on Monday. I mean, I think we had the pavilion till I don't know, 3 o'clock, and I think 3 o'clock people were starting to finally leave a little bit. And, and that's exactly what, what we had hoped for. That's, that's the kinds of things that, that we want to see. The difficulty, of course, is that there's certain obstacles to community. There's certain obstacles to creating relationship. One is just plain busyness. I don't know about you, but I don't need more things on my calendar. How about you? I mean, right? I, I mean, I look at my calendar every week. On Sunday night, I try to look for the next week. I've noticed that in the last few weeks, I've, I've avoided that on Sundays just because Monday is going to, you know, I, it's not fair when you get more than one Monday in a week. Can I just say that? It's just, it's just not right. Um, but that happens, I think, to all of us. So busyness, distractions, there's lots of distractions. In our house, we have this phrase, it's called OBE, overtaken by events. You got a plan, and, and there's things happen, and the next thing you know, you're scrambling trying to catch up with it. I think it was Mike Tyson who says, no fight plan ever survives the first punch. Yeah, I think that's true. Those of you in the military, uh, the plan never survives contact with the enemy. You know, so you're overtaken by the events of your of your day. Sometimes by the hour, and sometimes there's this shifting priorities where I thought this was going to be important, but for whatever reason, something else has come up, and now something else is important. Are, are you tracking with me here? Nod your head so know you're awake. Yeah, this this happens. I think to all of us. And when you're talking about things like priorities. There is um, a cost to things that are important. When something takes on more importance, there is always a cost. Always. And Jesus even mentions it. It's in Luke chapter 14, and I'll, I'll put it up here on the screen for you so that you can see it. But in this part of the story, Jesus has this large group of followers who are, who are with him. And he, he turns to them and he tells them a couple of parables, but, but ultimately he wants them to understand just what it is that they're getting into. Here it is. He says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish... All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Fool. He goes on. 
Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to, um, uh, to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now, how many of you read that and you've got uh, Lord of the Rings in your mind going, not with 10,000 men could you do this, right? Okay. It's amazing I get anything done, right? The point here is that, that Jesus is, is trying, to, trying to tell us something. There is always, always a cost for something important. And, and that cost is typically time. It's a cost of money, very often. And it certainly is a, a cost of energy or your attention. And sometimes it's even a cost of your reputation. Fun, huh? But when, there's, when there is something that's important, it will cost you something. And at some level, everything we do has a cost. And the question is, what are you willing to spend? In our house, we, we often say, hey, there's pros and cons to everything. What con do you want to live with? When you're trying to make a decision, that's really ultimately what you're coming up to. There's going to be a cost to this. What are you willing to pay in order to have this thing or make this priority or to go out and do this kind of activity? What, what's the kind you're willing to live with? And here's the thing that I've noticed. Some of the costs that we're willing to pay go unchallenged. And how many of you have had that experience where you've, you, you, you woke up one morning and you're, you're kind of you know, looking in the mirror, thinking about your life, thinking about yourself, and you're going, um, why am I doing this, whatever this is? And you kind of wonder that. You go, wait, wait a second. I'm paying something. There's a cost to this thing, whether it's a job, whether it's a relationship, whether it's an activity that you're doing. It doesn't matter. The point is there's a cost, and you realize that you're paying all of this for it, and you're wondering, why? Why am I doing this? That happens, too. There's a cost to everything that's important to us. And sometimes things become important that we never intended for them to become important. I'm going to give a little bit of a confession here. More often than I care to admit, um, I pray while I'm falling asleep. Now, I'm a disciple. Discipleship is important. Growth and spiritual maturity is an important Thing. At least that's what I say, but sometimes my actions don't match up to that. And so I give God my leftovers at the end of the day. Now, don't get me wrong, whether you're falling asleep or not, it's a good idea to pray, and you should be praying. But I think sometimes that when I'm, when I'm falling asleep and, and slurring my words because I'm, I'm half asleep as I'm doing it. I, there's a part of me that says my discipleship has, has slipped. And something's got to give when we're so busy in our lives. And did you notice it's usually God? Very often it's God who, who slips. Now I want, I want you to, to hear me say something very important. If you're feeling that way, like something has slipped a little bit in your discipleship. If you're feeling that way, and you think I'm saying, or you're hearing a voice in your head that's saying, bad Christian, 
doing this at you. That's not from God. God doesn't condemn us for certain things that we're doing. That's not from God. My experience is when, when God is convicting me of something, it is always like an armor on the shoulder saying, oh, David, I got something so much better for you. That's not a condemning thing. That's a convicting thing. So if you're feeling condemned, like, oh, I'm just a lousy Christian. I don't know why I'm doing this discipleship thing. And you're feeling lousy about yourself. Not from God. That's a lie from the enemy to try to get you out of the game. And so you need to resist that. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm just making an observation for myself that I know that things are slipping when I'm falling asleep while I'm praying. And you've got your own diag diagnostics. You've got things that in your life you know, hey, if I'm not doing X, Y, and Z, I know that something's slipping. I've talked to some of you, and I know those, those, uh, those little telltale signs that we have. But, but always keep in mind, when God is speaking to you and he's convicting you about something, there's, there's this feeling of there's something better. If it's just you feeling bad about yourself, again, not from God. Keep that in mind. And so the question that I try to ask myself is, how might we prioritize discipleship in community with one another? How might we prioritize this? Now, keep, keep also in mind the fact that it's okay to be alone. Because every time you start talking about community, you scare the introverts. You know, they don't, they're like, whoa, wait a minute. You want me to talk to people? I don't know if I want to do that. And introverts are all doing this kind of thing. They're like, that, that's not what I'm saying. It's okay to be alone sometimes. In fact, Jesus often would go by himself and he'd go and pray. He would just commune with the Father. He just wouldn't stay there the entire time. But he also engaged as well because love your neighbor as yourself requires being around neighbors. So how might we prioritize this idea of community? How do we allow community and relationship to be a regular part of life? And that may mean something different for those of you who are introverts and those who of you who are extroverts. And by the way, when I talk about that, introverts <laughs> doesn't mean, if you're introverted, it doesn't mean that you don't like people. That's not what introversion means. And extroverts don't particularly, isn't particularly that they like people. It's where you get your energy from. I get energy when I'm around people and I'm having a conversation with them. I have friends who are opposite. They get energy when they're by themselves. The fact of the matter is to be a balanced, um, healthy individual, I have to have a little bit of both. Does that make sense? So keep that in mind, that when we talk about extroversion and introversion, it's not whether you're around people or not. It's just, hey, I know on Sunday mornings I'm going to be giving a lot of energy, and what am I going to do in the afternoon to help balance that? For me, it's take a nap. That's how I do it. Uh, for you, it might be something different, and that's okay. Now, the worst thing, the worst thing I can possibly do today is... Next slide. <laughs> something happened, is to make you feel guilty, okay? If, I don't want you to feel guilty about relationship and discipleship. That, I, this is so counterproductive to me, and yet the church has done it for years and years and years and years. We, we try to, and it's a great way to make, feel, make people feel guilty is a great way of getting people to have short-term behavior change. 
But it's not necessarily a long-term thing. Guilt is ridiculous. There's no point to that. And it achieves nothing positive in the long run. It's just not helpful. And so my goal today is not to make anyone feel bad or to feel guilty, but I just want you to take a step back and, and, and ask some questions and maybe see your life a little bit bigger, in a bigger context. Um, I tell people all the time, part of my job is to help you zoom out. Now, we can zoom in on specific things if we need to, but uh, more often than not, we get lost in the details and we forget that there's a bigger picture, and I want you to zoom out a little bit. And maybe, just maybe when we do that, we can catch a glimpse of what God has in mind for each one of us in our discipleship. And, and so I want to point out something to you. I just want to go back to, to Acts chapter 2. I want you to see this little, little piece. It's in verse 46 and 47. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, did you notice that there was a phrase that was repeated? Day by day. And very often ancient writers would do this as bookends so that you would understand there's a complete thought here. There's something important between these two. I'm repeating the words so that you see that this is what I started with and this is where I ended with and you need to pay attention to what's in the middle, okay? Those bookends are very important. Day by day, he uses the term, uh, and if those of you who are interested, it's, it's Hermea, Hamera, sorry, <laughs> Hamera. Uh, don't be impressed, you, you too can look it up. Um, but it's this notion of, day by day. And it's a continual type of thing that happens over a period of time. And so what they did, and you can see it in here, first of all, they met for corporate worship. That's what the temple is for. You go to the temple to be with large groups of people in order to worship. That's why we come to church on Sundays. There is something powerful when the tribe gets together and we sing praises together. I don't know if you, you noticed, but at one point during our worship experience this morning, you could hear it. Did you hear it? Because I felt it. And sometimes there's a little voices up here that you hear and you go, oh, be still my heart. Right? There's something powerful about corporate worship. And so they went to the temple and they did corporate worship together. But that's only part of the picture. The second thing they did is they ate together. Breaking bread in their homes. It implies that it was a regular normative practice. And you know what? It was personal too. Food always is. Because when you sit down across the table from somebody, you're in proximity to them, your conversation changes. Have you noticed this? It's one thing to be at, say, a cocktail party and you're 10 or 12 feet away and you're having a conversation about what you do, but then you go and you sit down at a table and you have a conversation with someone you get to learn a little bit more about what their day-to-day -day looks like. Eating with someone is almost always more personal than other types of interactions with them. And so they ate together. And here's the thing that I want you to notice more than anything else. And I don't know how many times I've read through this passage. It says they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Another translation, it's uh, glad and um, sincere hearts. Did a little digging on these words. I wanted to understand them. What does it mean to have a glad heart? Gladness, the word, really means extreme joy. They received their food overjoyed. 
And this word generous, sincere, carries with it the idea of simplicity. If I were going to take these words and I put them into kind of modern language, the way that I think would help us understand it, when the people got together to eat together, it was fun and it was genuine. Have you ever noticed that when people are expecting to have fun, they behave differently? To wit, Disney World. Uh, a couple years ago, we went to Disney World, and uh, I was sitting with my um, eldest daughter, and there was a guy who was <laughs> walking. I'll never forget this. This guy was walking up, <clears throat> and he had one of these T-shirts on, and it was Grumpy, the one of the dwarfs, right? Grumpy. And uh, he was wearing this hat. It was a goofy hat with, you know, the brim. He's got the two teeth and the... And I looked at Elizabeth and I said, there is only one place on the planet he will actually wear those clothes. Now, he probably just spent 57 bucks for the t-shirt and for the hat. But there's only one place, because he, he's not going to wear that around his friends <laughs> when he gets home. It's just not going to happen. But he expected to have fun, so he bought the hat and he bought the t-shirt, right? Now, Contra, at the end of the day, uh, we, were, we were sitting in the... Uh, I think it was Fantasyland at the Magic Kingdom. And some of you have heard me tell this story before. There's this, there's this family, and they're walking along, and they got the, 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 the three, uh, three-seated stroller. Have you seen these? They're these massive things. Uh, you, you plow through a group of people with that. You've got to be careful. And um, there's mom, and dad's pushing the thing, and dad's mad about something. I don't know what dad's mad about, but he's not happy. Mom looks exhausted. There's a teenager, earplugs in their ear, doing this kind of thing as they're walking down the road. And there's two kids inside the, the, the triple stroller, and all the backpacks and stuff are between them. And the little baby is sleeping, and then there's one little kid, she's got to be four or five years old, at the top of her lungs, she's singing, It's a Small World After All. That kid gets it, right? It was the most beautiful thing because I'm looking at, I'm like, Dad's probably mad at, you know, he's heard that song 59 times already. He's mad he's got to hear it one more. And he can't say anything because he's in a crowd at Disney World, so he can't say anything to the child, so he's just angry. But she gets it. We act differently when we expect to have fun, right? We do this. And so they would, they would receive their food with, with joy, with, with, a, with, a, with an anticipation that this is a really good thing that they're a part of. And then there's this part is that we're just, it's genuine. That's real. You know, it's easy to engage when things are real. Have you noticed that? Because it's just natural. There's no force to it. When you're around you know, some people and you're expecting to have fun and you're doing this thing because you love Jesus and there's just this sense that it, it's real. I can be me and you can be you and we're going to be okay with that because we've gotten personal and we know each other a little bit. Are you with me? Is this making sense? People came with joy and simplicity. Yes, was there growth? Of course there was. Was there discussion? Yes. Was there prayer? Yes. Was there confession? I'm sure there was. Were there hard times? Yes. Were there obstacles? Yes. Were there differences of personality? Yes, there were all, was all of that. But they came in with joy and simplicity. That we're here because we follow Jesus. You follow Jesus, I follow Jesus, and we need each other. 
There is something truly real and genuine about that. And the evidence that we find in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 is that God moved profoundly in those environments. I've been to churches before where everybody's just sour. Have you been to those churches? And they wonder why God doesn't show up. Now, I'm not saying that God can't move. I'm just saying that when you come with joy and simplicity to an environment, I think God likes that. I think God moves in those kinds of environments because you are receptive to those things that God might do. Just a thought. So when we say things like life together, those are the kinds of things that we hope for. Joy and simplicity that you're really looking forward to being a part of those kinds of, of ideas. That you would experience God moving profoundly in some way. You know, with signs and wonders, hey, that would be cool, but sometimes it's just, I'm not alone. Sometimes it's, hey, somebody's in my corner. Somebody's going to check in on me. If, if this all goes south real quick, I'm going to have some care. Sometimes that's just enough. I don't know what it is for you. So this is fall kickoff, and what that means for us is it's beginning of the fall ministry season. Uh, by the way, there are three seasons in, um, in church world. There's football season. There's No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we have kind of fall, which takes us uh, from now until about Christmas. And then we have the, the winter, which takes us from January to uh, about May. And then we have the summer season. And so there are three major seasons. That's how we kind of operate um, as a church. A lot of churches do it that way. And um, for us... Uh, when we do the fall ministry season, when we do this, this kickoff, um, life groups start for us, our idea of small groups. This is our attempt uh, at getting at some of this idea of community. Because you can come here and be part of a corporate group, and it's great, and you're going to say hi to someone and talk to them, um, but there's something different about when you sit across the table and you eat from them. Interestingly enough, I talked with somebody after our uh, picnic last week and said, you know, this was really nice because I had a chance to actually sit and talk to some people that I only would say hi to on Sunday morning. And I thought, yeah, that's great. That's exactly what we're, what we're trying to achieve as a church, and that's where small groups become a part of that picture, become part of the program. And uh, so this is where we um, um, try to, to do discipleship inside of community. It's, it's one way of, of doing this. And so I've invited Pastor James to come and um, chat with me just a little bit about what's happening um, in our small groups. Are you here? Oh, there you are. I saw him earlier, but, you know, anyway. So... Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, James is our discipleship pastor, and he is responsible for, uh, at least in part, our small groups. Do you have a mic? Yeah. And, uh, and so we're going we're gonna to be doing some stuff uh, this year, and so I wanted him to kind of talk about it. So I'm going to lob him some questions, and he's going to answer in a distinctly James way. So <laughs> no pressure, man. So let me, let me start. We've, got, we've had life groups since we started, right? Yep. And how many life groups do we have now and about how many part people participate? Do you know? So we have four official life groups. Um, we have some people that kind of come in and out and shepherd, but four official life, life groups right now. Um, 
And last we checked, about 80% of the population of the church, 80% yeah. of what we see here on Sunday participates in a small yeah. group. That's, that's really exciting because the, the national average of people who are involved in small groups in a church environment is like less than 40%. So the, the fact is we started Thrive with this idea of doing discipleship in community and life groups, and that's an important, important part. We, we haven't called it the cheers factor, you know, where everybody knows your name, right? And that's kind of what we're after. And so the fact that we're at 80% of, of people involved in a life group is, is a big deal to us. So um, tell me a little bit, tell us a little bit about what a life group meeting looks like, and I guess we're going to do something different this year, right? Definitely. Um, so normally the, the life group structure is uh, you come in and there's a bit of a Bible study. What we've done in the past has been book-based Bible studies um, or just book studies in general. Um, and then there's food, which is always nice. The way we always structure ours is uh, the meal first, a uh, little bit of study, and then dessert. You got something to look forward to. Um, <laughs> not that, you know, the study <laughs> isn't, you know, whatever. Nice recovery. Uh, <clears throat> <clears throat> um, but it's a little different this time. Um, there's still dessert, so nobody worry. Um, <laughs> we're not doing a book uh, this time around. And there's a bunch of different reasons for that. If you want to talk in depth, we can, we can do that. But um, it's based on a series. The study this, this time is based on a series of videos uh, by a corporation called Seedbed. Um, and the series is called Seven Minute Seminary. Um, and they are seven minute videos. Uh -huh. Hey, what do you know? <laughs> um, so everyone will sit and watch a video, and it covers everything from the importance of small groups to the importance of you know, uh, particular pieces of theology. Um, and then each one of those is accompanied by uh, a PDF that's a study guide that has questions and a short reading. There's nothing longer than one page. Um, so the idea is that instead of having to find time to read throughout the week, uh, you can all get together, watch this short video, answer some questions together, and hopefully spark discussion, um, which in the yeah. past has been kind of a, a deal. But it, yeah. the whole point of it is to spark discussion about um, like I said, theology and the importance of small groups. Yeah. Seedbed, uh, for those of you who don't know, is an organization that Pastor Dan actually worked for for a while. And uh, we're huge fans of Seedbed and some of the things they're doing. And a lot of the short video, seven minutes, um, uh, comes from our theological tradition, which sometimes you don't necessarily find uh, online. And it's all really high quality stuff. And by the way, it's not so heady that it's not like going to a seminary lecture, so don't, don't freak out about that. But it, there's some good, solid teaching. Um, and we just felt like, and you know, James kind of found this program, well, program, this idea, and we kind of gravitated towards it because we thought, one, it's, it's not a lot of um, pre-work, because again, I don't know about you, I'm not looking for more things on my calendar, right? And so we wanted to do it where we could all get together and spark some discussion about it. And I'll tell you, the neat thing is, too, is that um, every couple of weeks you'll be getting, if you're signed up for a small group, you'll be getting these emails with the video and the study guide. So you can, I know some people like to look over the questions beforehand, so you'll have the questions on hand if you want to do that. Also, if you miss a week, you're more than happy to watch the, you know, watch the video, keep up with what everybody's doing, um, and, and keep up that way. Yeah. So. Um, the, uh, the other hope that we have is that we want to, um, we want to multiply our, our life groups. And to do that, sometimes if you have a, a facilitator, a person who is um, leading those discussions, 
we put a lot of, you, some of the programs can put a lot of pressure on them to do the prep work. And so what we want to do is make it a little bit uh, easier, is that the right word, um, for them so that, that they would feel comfortable facilitating. Some people are really good at just inviting people into conversation and asking questions, but don't necessarily have the time to do all the prep work ahead of time. And so we wanted to, to try to alleviate some of that pressure. And I think this does a good job of that Definitely. from all the stuff that we've read. Um, now, the other thing that we, we've talked about is sometimes your life is overtaken by events. And you may have been part of a life group at one point that's meeting on a particular evening or day that no longer works for your schedule. What do I do? Or maybe you've never been part of a life group before and you want to get involved in one. Um, what, what do they need to do to, to take care of that? Come find me. That's the simple, that's the long and short. Um, you can reach me. Uh, my email is james at invitedtothrive.church. Uh, you can come get me at any service. What I really need to know, um, it usually is, is what day works best. Right now we've got three meeting on Sundays because that's, that's the best day, um, and another one meeting on Wednesdays. So um, what, what day is best for you? We've, we're always open to splitting off and starting new groups if we've got a, a place to host and someone to host it. Um, oh, there's a Saturday group. I'm sorry. Take that back. Saturday, yeah. Uh, that's right. Uh, <laughs> It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, but yes, no. Uh, yeah, there's a Saturday group, some Sunday groups, and then in Wednesday. But like I said, we're always looking to multiply those groups, spin right. off. So if there's another day, and especially if you know someone else who another day would work for them, I'd be more than happy to start that. Yep, that would be great. So if you have questions, James has got to ask you. Um, is got to ask, but I mean, you can always ask me or Dan, but we're probably going to tell you to go talk to James. So, you know, let's just circumvent the middle middlemen here. Uh, I'm glad to do it. Um, I, I don't n know about anybody else, but from our standpoint is I look forward to our life groups every week. And you know what? Sometimes things are so busy and I'm like, oh man, how are we going to fit one more thing in? But by the time it gets there, I am so glad that they're around. I just, I feel, I feel better. I feel a little bit different just because I got to spend some time with people, other people who love Jesus more than just Sunday morning. So yeah, it's good.